So this morning, if you would turn uh, in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. This morning we're going to consider uh, verses 1 through 21 together. And uh, as Joe and I were talking this morning, there's kind of a, uh, there's a feeling about preaching a passage that is so familiar, that is... Uh, a little daunting at first. Um, it's so familiar to, to so many people. And uh, as Joe reminded me this morning, thankfully, he says, it's always good to go and look at that scripture again and see it afresh. And maybe to even consider that if you've heard it taught many, many times, you may have not always heard it taught well. And you may have not heard it taught in context. And uh, so it's good to go back and look at those things and grab them in their context. And so this morning we are going to be in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Uh, I will say this, that if you need a Bible to follow along, and I do suggest that you do, because you following along in your Bible holds the guy standing up here accountable. Is he saying what it says, or is he saying something else, right? We do have some on the back table there for you if you need one, and if you don't own one, the one that you grab back there is yours to keep. So join me now as we pray, and then we will read the Word. Father God, we come to you this morning and to your word uh, with thanksgiving. We thank you, Lord, for the grace of your salvation that is given to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the transforming work of your Holy Spirit. We declare our dependence upon you, Lord, the triune God. We are dependent upon God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, to reveal to us Christ. We declare our only hope is in Christ, who grants us access to the fountain of goodness that is found in the Father. Lord, we ask that you would open up our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to receive your word this morning by grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, we will begin here in John chapter 3, and we will read from verse 1 through verse 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into the heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. So the grace of God does not find men fit for salvation, but makes them so. This is what Augustine said some 1,600 years ago, that the grace of God does not find men fit for salvation, but makes them so. And as we are titling this morning's message, The Kingdom of the Converted, uh, we're going to clearly see some of those things. You see, as we live in this world, we understand this, that the kingdoms of the world, the world governments, our social constructs are always at odds, always have been at odds and at conflict with the kingdom of God. Because of Adam's sin, everyone born after him are aliens to and rebellious toward the kingdom of God. Everyone born after Adam is an alien and and is foreign and opposed to the kingdom of God. You see, we are born with a natural affinity toward the kingdoms of the world, and we are born a natural enemy of the kingdom of God. Humankind in our natural state is unfit for the kingdom of God. Fallen humanity belongs to the kingdom of darkness. And we are lovers of darkness. And as a lover of darkness, then the opposite is true, haters of light. We'll see from our text this morning that salvation is all of grace. It is grace given in mercy from beginning all the way to the end. Salvation is all of grace. It is the triune God's work from start to finish. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of grace. To belong to the kingdom of God is to belong to the kingdom of grace. Grace given. Grace received. Grace lived. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are the converted people of God. And the converted people of God are only that by God's gracious acts upon us. It is His acts alone that make one fit for the kingdom. Let us look carefully at the first four verses. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, as we look at our passage this morning, it is a dialogue between Jesus and a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of the law. This is Nicodemus. The miracle at Cana, where Jesus had turned water into wine, his zeal for the house that that, that Jesus displayed by driving the money changers out from the temple. And other signs have been noticed now by the Jewish leadership. And our scene opens with one of their leaders, Nicodemus, coming to him in the darkness. 
And it begins by Nicodemus making a theologically accurate statement. He, does, he makes a theologically accurate statement in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He, he makes this theologically accurate statement, and then he also makes an attempt to find equal footing between himself, the Sanhedrin, and Jesus. He's trying to find this equal footing. You see, he says, for we know, that is, me and you and those who sent me, right? We know that you are sent from God. This theologically accurate statement is, I know, we know, the Jews know, and you know that signs that have been formed like you have done can only be done in God. They are supernatural works that Satan cannot do. He can only mimic them. We know that these signs come from God. He can't produce them out of himself as God can, out of nothing. And we are like you, Jesus. We are a teacher sent from God. Nicodemus is saying here, the boys in the club think that you could be one of us. That we are like-minded teachers. We are sent in God's power and God's authority. The Jewish leaders, see, they rightly believed that signs accompanied heaven's authority. They often did, right? Heaven's authority, and then there were signs that confirmed that this is an authority that comes from God and not from man. But they had become so occupied with understanding and interpreting the meaning of signs that they missed the reality of the kingdom at hand in the person of Jesus Christ. They missed it. It was, it was at hand, right in front of them. But they were looking for a sign. And they're trying to find out, what do these signs mean? And so Jesus here is expounding a bit upon John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus here, he gets right to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? In typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't linger around on the acclaim that Nicodemus gives him. We know that you are someone sent from God. Jesus doesn't answer that or linger upon that, but he quickly gets right to the heart of the matter. You see, without saying it, Jesus will indicate that it's not about signs at all. He would say, Nick, salvation is the heart of the matter, and it's a matter of the heart. Salvation is the heart of the matter. It's not about signs. And it's a matter of the heart. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you. So Jesus begins this conversation, this discourse with truly, truly. What he's about to say is this. Here comes the unvarnished truth. Nicodemus, I am about to give you the unadulterated, unvarnished truth. I am about to give you the pride-crushing truth of the gospel. See, it's often said, and I believe this to be true, that if the truth is to be effective, it must at first be offensive. And so as he continues here in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Of God. See, born again in the Greek is geneo anothen. 
which means this, regenerated from above. So often we have probably heard this passage and not really understood it, to be born again. Nicodemus misses it, you were going to see. But in the original language, Jesus here is saying that in order to even comprehend the kingdom of God, you must be made new. You must be made new. You must be regenerated from above. You must be made new with an act that only God can perform. Only God can do this work. You must be made new. You cannot be learned enough. You cannot be religious enough. You cannot be nice enough. You must be born again. You must be made new by God's gracious and merciful act. You must be regenerated from above. He says, see, Adam, or I mean Nicodemus, you, being born of Adam, are incapable of comprehending the truth of the kingdom of God without being made new. Your old traditions are no help to you at all. What is necessary is that you be made new, regenerated from above by an act of God alone. This is the unvarnished truth as you stand before me, Nicodemus. You are unable to comprehend the kingdom of God. This is the pride-crushing gospel. This is a pride-crushing gospel. What is most needed from the pulpit in America, I believe, is the unconcealed, uncompromised truth. Unvarnished. It is the pride-crushing gospel. When we withhold, we do withhold Christian love if we withhold the unvarnished truth. For Nicodemus, Jesus delivers right to the heart of the matter. What is necessary is that God made you make you new. You must be born again to comprehend the kingdom of God. To comprehend, to even understand or to get it, to look at it, to see it clearly, God must you must be regenerated from above. You must be made new. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, here he is. This message of rebirth to Nicodemus is beyond the human comprehension of Nicodemus, isn't it? As he perceives the rebirth, he, he perceives it in purely human terms. How can I go as an old man and get back in the womb and be born again? Jesus tells him, but what is necessary is spiritual newness. You must be made new. Verse 5, and Jesus answered again, truly, truly, here comes the unvarnished truth. Here comes the uncompromised truth, Nicodemus. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, Jesus explains that the necessary new birth comes about by grace. New birth is received from above in the power of the sovereign spirit and according to the sovereign will of God. Look at verse 5. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The Greek word here, translated water, is like this. It's like a shower cleansing in torrential rain from above. You must be born in this torrential rain shower coming down from above in God to completely cleanse you, to make you new, to make you fresh, to be thoroughly cleansed from the heavens above. And to be born of the Spirit is defined as having the breath of God blasted into you. It's very distinct. It's about having the the breath of God blasted into the person so that it overtakes them. To be overtaken by the Spirit of God is what he's after here. You cannot apprehend, grab a hold of, is the idea. He says here, enter the kingdom. But but it's, it's more pointedly, you cannot grab a hold of and apprehend the kingdom of God unless the Spirit of God has overtaken you and made you new has regenerated you from above, has cleansed you with the showering power of the Holy Spirit of God to make you new, make you fresh. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless this Holy Spirit fills you and you then have gained the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Contrary to what our universalist friends might think, John is clear here that not everyone who is created in the image of God will comprehend and apprehend the kingdom of God ultimately. Although everyone in the world is an image bearer of the one who created them, not all of them will comprehend and apprehend the kingdom of God. That it is God's work in a person that causes them to be able to comprehend and apprehend the kingdom of God. It is His work. It is all of grace is what John wants to get across here. It's all of God's grace. Unmerited, unearned, personal favor. It is all God's work in salvation. To comprehend the kingdom of God, a spiritual rebirth from above is necessary. To apprehend the kingdom of God, one must be transformed by the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. You must be changed by a gracious act of God. The breath of God must be blasted into you if you are to enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. That's what he's saying here. You must be changed. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute in the society that we live in right now. Everywhere we go, this is what we hear. I was born this way. You need to accept me as I am. You need to accept me just right where I'm at. And we've even heard probably really poor preaching. I'm going to be honest with you. We've probably heard really poor preaching in churches where it says, come as you are. Don't worry about being changed. Well, if you tell that person that same thing every single week that they come, You have just unlovingly sent them to hell probably. No, you must be changed. To enter the kingdom of God, change must happen. You need to be made new. Now here's the deal. If I tell you this right now, and I'm telling everybody in this room, you are not going to muster up that strength to change yourself. 
It can't be done. This is why it is a gracious act of God. It is God's act in changing us. He's the one. He's the one who regenerates us from above and makes us new. He is the one who showers us with the Holy Spirit, penetrating our very soul and cleansing us, making us fit for the kingdom of God. It is God's work in salvation. John changes this address as we look in verse 7 and verse 8. Verse 7, he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He changes the, the, it becomes from singular to plural right here in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, so singular, to you, Nicodemus. Now he's addressing everyone in the plural. You must be born again. Everyone, plural, all are included. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, for anyone to be saved, anyone, understand this, it is the sovereign will of God and it is the power of the Holy Spirit alone. And Jesus here says, you cannot harness the Spirit. You cannot do enough good works to merit it. You must be generated from above as an act of God and God alone. You know not where it begins and you know not where it will take you. The Spirit that regenerates anyone does according to His own will. In chapter 6, John will expound upon this idea of salvation being all of grace. In chapter 6, verses 63 through 65, you can jot that down if you want. I'm going to read it here. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who those who those were who wouldn't who did not believe and those who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to them by the Father. So all of what we've said so far leads us to what they call in dramatic literature the MDQ. It is the major dramatic question. And here we have Nicodemus asking the major dramatic question of this text. How can these things be? How can this be so? The pride-crushing gospel of grace often leads us to that point of bewilderment, doesn't it? When you hear that you can't save yourself... When you hear and you understand that it is not about you doing some act that made you worthy of salvation, it leads us to pause and bewilderment. Because it makes us think we, we are all alike, I think, in some ways, in that you know, we want it to be about works that we might be doing. If it's not about works done by me in righteousness, the question becomes, then how can I be saved? If I can't save myself, I can't make the right decision. I can't just muster up righteousness in God's eye. How, how can I be saved? What must I do? Well, you know, the disciples asked a similar question of Jesus in Matthew 19, in verses 25 and 26. Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. To say it another way and maybe more pointedly, is it is impossible for anyone to comprehend and apprehend salvation in human effort. 
It is impossible for anyone to comprehend or apprehend salvation through human effort. The only possibility of salvation for anyone is that in God's mercy, according to His love, He would shower upon those to whom his, by His sovereign will that He chose with the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. It is by grace you have been saved. It is a gift of God that no man shall boast. Listen to Jesus' answer to Nicodemus as he further goes in verses 10 through 17. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you that we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I told you heavenly things? Well, I'll get back to this text. You see, I want to I look at what this first part of Jesus' answer here. Are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus, you claim to be a teacher, and yet you don't understand. Clearly, as a teacher of Israel, you probably taught Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And also, from the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You would have taught this, Nicodemus. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And from Ezekiel... Chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a, a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules." And then further, in Ezekiel 37, verse 9, Then he said to me, Prophecy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. That's all an act of God. And he's saying, You being a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, surely you taught those things. But you taught what you don't even understand. And he says, What I'm giving you today, what we... Notice Jesus' language is, is pearl here. He says, We speak of what we know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We speak of what we know, and yet you don't understand. But I know that you've taught these things to the people of Israel, but you don't even understand what you're teaching. You don't even understand the truth about what you're teaching. But we teach what we know, and here's what we know, Right? that it is an act of God. It's apparent, Nicodemus, that you teach what you don't understand. But the message I bear to you, you've had it all along. The message I give you today that you must be born again, you've had it all along. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we speak what we know, and you do not receive our testimony. It's clearly, Nicodemus, that you must be born again to comprehend and apprehend the kingdom of God. You see, Nicodemus, the authority for salvation is not according to the authority of the rulers of Israel. It is according to the Scripture alone. 
It is according to the Scripture alone that that authorizes God's gracious act in salvation. See, the Reformers, their first strike against the Roman Catholic Church was that grace is according to the authority of Scripture alone and not the Scripture plus the papacy. It was sola scriptura, the Scriptures alone, not the church that has authority, right? Not equal authority, right? Further in our text, we have seen that salvation is by grace alone, sola gratia. Salvation is only according to God's word and God's work. You see, Nicodemus says, the scripture teaches according to the scripture alone, by grace alone, and through faith alone. By faith, according to the scriptures in Numbers 21, as we read here in John uh, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He says, here, you see, even in your scriptures, by faith alone, those who were saved were those who looked upon the serpent in the desert. But so it is today. It is those who look upon Jesus raised upon a cross for sin, who by faith alone will be saved, according to the scriptures alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. But this is not a flimsy, all-inclusive faith. It is faith alone, pointedly, in Christ alone. Let's look at the most popular verse, probably in the whole Bible. Everybody's heard a million times, seen it at every sporting event. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, the word world here and in the Bible has many nuanced definitions. It can mean cosmos, which is all of created order, the planet, the stars, all that God created. It can be referred to as the whole of humanity, right? Every human is part of the world. It can be referred to, world can mean, you know, as part of the the system that the world operates in, right? But the use of world here, is not inclusive of every human being ever born. Uh, A proper rendering of this verse 16 in its Greek origin might sound something like this. God so loved those that he has received, cared for, and is carrying away from the world that he gave his only son, that as many whom he has willed and determined to shower with life-giving, life-cleansing spirit, those might be generated from above by faith alone in Christ alone. They will be saved. See, we can often take this passage and make it very universal. God so loved the world that whosoever, right? And then you get a lot of false confessions because then it's like a one and done thing, right? All I got to do is say that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore I'm saved, right? Because I said it. I took a, a walk down an aisle at a, at, a, at a rally somewhere and therefore I'm saved. It can lead to easy believism. But when you understand that what God is saying through His Word here is that God loved those in the world that He has cared for, that He is carrying out of the world, that He has chosen to bestow His saving grace upon those He is showering His Holy Spirit upon, He came to save those. He came to save those. And those that would believe in Him, now we don't know who they are, right? Joe and I were talking about this this morning as well. Right? We, we preach the message that, that God is sovereign in salvation. 
But since I don't know who they are, and you don't either, then we preach the whosoever gospel, as Charles Spurgeon would say. We preach it to whosoever might hear. To whosoever God has chosen. To whosoever God has willed to bestow His gracious act of salvation upon. We preach it to everyone. We preach it to everyone. So, here it is. God came into the world to save those, and He's carrying them away by faith alone. He's carrying them away by faith alone in Christ alone, and to them He gives eternal life. The eternal life He gives here is to the regenerated from above. It certainly means everlasting, but it also means in the text that those who believe from the moment that He saves them, they have perpetual life. They have life right then. He's taking them from death to life, from darkness to light. It's immediate, right? They have life. They have been transformed. They have been changed. I think about this often. When I, I would bet that when you were first saved, when you first came to Christ, you were like, it was incredulous to you. Like you couldn't believe it. Why do I believe? How, did I, how do I believe? I don't understand how I believe. I don't understand how God has been so gracious and kind to me. I don't get it. We were pretty excited about that and pretty bewildered by our salvation at first. Why me? And then we kind of lose, that loses its luster a bit because we don't recognize just what a gracious act of God it is that we are saved and that we are being saved currently. And we have been given life in that moment. We, we understood, I think, at least I'm just, maybe I'm projecting too much of my uh, salvation story on you, but when I was saved, I just knew that all of a sudden, I could see things I could never see before. I could understand things I had never understood before. I could trust the Scriptures that I couldn't trust before. I could trust the one who wrote the Scriptures as it being authentic and real and genuine. I trusted fully. I believed. I couldn't understand. I was amazed by that fact because I had read it before. And they were just words on a page before. I'd read it and all of a sudden now I believe. So God done, had done some work, right? God had done some work and had given me life, and I felt alive, more alive than I ever had. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You see, God sent His Son into the world, the created world, not to condemn the world, but He came to the world, meaning that those that are in the world that he has received and he is carrying away, that he has cared for by faith alone and Christ alone, he has come to give them perpetual, eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, the pride-crushing gospel declares this, that salvation is all of grace. It is God's work from beginning to end. There's no human who comprehends or apprehends the kingdom of God without being made new from above first, without being changed by the cleansing power of God and the breath of God filling him with the Spirit of God. The pride-crushing gospel narrowly defines faith. It is faith in Christ alone. You can be sincere about the things you believe. You can have faith. You can have lots of faith. But if your faith is not in Christ alone for salvation, you are sincerely condemned before God. 
You can be sincere about a lot of things, and you can be sincerely wrong. You can be sincerely dead. But he needs to make you sincerely alive from above. The pride-crushing gospel says that under the curse of sin, humankind loves sin. Darkness loves darkness. Humankind loves sin, loves darkness, hates the light, hates the truth of Jesus. See, this radical depravity requires a radical conversion. If you recognize just how radically depraved we are, we were, we know that the conversion is radical. It is a radical, drastic change. I love that the words of this scripture seem to come alive to me this morning as we're thinking about that this, this shower of the Spirit and a blast of the breath of God that renews a person. See, it's a radical conversion. It's a radical work of God. But I think they're side by side with the fact that we are radically depraved. And it would take a radical work to save a radically depraved human being, right? It takes a radical work of God. Radical depravity says that although you're not as sinful as you possibly could be, it says that every part of your life is captured in some way by sin. Every part of you is captured. My daughter asked me this week, and I didn't answer her, but I've been thinking about it. She asked me, how come in school they can teach about Islam, Catholicism, and the like, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is forbidden? She says, how come? And the answer is right here. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You see, they don't want Jesus because they don't want the truth. Because without an act of God from above, they love darkness. They love sin. If they were to allow the gospel to come in, then they're exposed, right? Then I have to be real about who I am before a holy God. So we'll let you talk about any other false religion you want to. But you start talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're done. Because whether they, they and they probably consciously don't even know it. It's that we do not want that light. I will not have that man rule over me. That is the intent of the depravity of the human heart. So today, as we have done this and studied this together, I know that there may be some who think, well, Jeff, it sounds like you have a pretty low view of humanity. I don't. It's just that I have a very high view of God. I don't have a low view of humankind. I have a very high view of who God is, right? God is not me. He is not us. God is God, right? I have a high view of God. I preach the big God gospel, not the little God gospel, the one that fits in our little pocket that we want to, you know, maneuver and handle and manipulate. No. I want to preach the big God gospel, right? And I want us, when we're gathered here together and we're singing songs, we're singing songs to the big God, to the big God, the God of grace who saved us. We preach a big God gospel. So today, 
in your hearing, I have attempted to preach to you the pride-crushing, God-exalting gospel of Jesus Christ. I've attempted to illuminate the room here with the Spirit-filled Word of God that whosoever God wills will come to that light. So let us pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you rain down upon us from heaven. We ask for your cleansing spirit upon those who you have determined that you're going to carry off from this world and give perpetual life. Holy Spirit of God, we ask for a radical conversion. We ask for a radical conversion because of radical depravity. We ask, Lord, that you take us from death to life, from dark to light. Lord, we ask this and truly that we understand grace. We ask that you help us to trust our salvation to the authority of Scripture alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.